0: Running. Lift off. We have a lift off. Good evening. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here, News 95.5, AM 750, WSB, the nation's most listened to news talk station. Yes, we are. People love us. So do you. Uh, we got a lot to talk about tonight. Let me tell you, first of all, just a housekeeping note if I sound a little bit off, I'm actually coming to you from Claremont McKenna College in uh, Claremont, California, flew in, got in 1 a.m. our time, and am giving a speech to the Claremont McKenna College uh, Athenaeum tonight, which is they they have a conference. They bring in speakers every week throughout the college year to talk about uh, different aspects of life. They asked me to come talk about how uh, Christianity and politics can sometimes collide and how counterculture Christianity is. So I'm I'm out here speaking tonight, uh, beautiful area, it never really rains here, and it's poured down rain since I got here last night, and it's cold, so uh, not your typical California. But if I sound a little bit odd, I'm actually coming to you from the college, and uh, they had a hang-up in the setup that they had for me, and so if I sound a little echoey, that is why. Uh, there's no good sound paneling around, I'm actually on a live mic, uh, like you would use on TV. Uh, now, let's get into the Super Bowl last night. Uh, before we get into anything else, yeah, I think everybody knew the Patriots were going to win. I saw lots of people circulating that verse from Daniel about the the goat shattering the horns of the ram. Uh, ram. Um, and then, of course, you know, the goat ultimately ends up uh, burning in hell. So, yeah, that probably was about the Patriots. <laughs> I kid. I kid. Uh, I, I love you all, even you Patriot fans. Um, I, I think it was kind of a no-brainer that they were going to win. Least-watched Super Bowl of all time in the uh, Louisiana area, of course. And, man, the advertisements. Good grief. We don't even need to spend a ton of time on the game itself. Uh, hard fault game. Tony Romo continues to impress. Uh, just, he's a neat guy. Um, but the ads last night. You know, you usually go to the Super Bowl and, and you're looking for really good ads. And you had the Washington Post ad uh, was just, it was ridiculous. The, the advertisement for the Washington Post, I, I, I'm not even gonna play audio. Uh, the Washington Post ad was basically about how uh, reporters go in and, and get you the information in war-torn areas, areas savaged by natural disaster, and uh, we need a free press, and democracy dies in the darkness without it. A- except we're seeing from the Washington Post Uh, that they're not really telling the truth in this regard. Time and time again, the Washington Post has refused to report stories accurately, choosing instead to report stories in a way that reflects their worldview. For example, if you will remember, uh, back last year, the Washington Post ran a story that shortly before James Comey was fired, he upped the amount of money being spent in the Russia investigation. That story was denied under oath by Andrew McCabe. It was denied by the FBI and it was denied by the Department of Justice. And yet, that's the story that the Washington Post chose to run. Um, it, they have countless stories like this. So look at the Ralph Nor- uh, Northam story. We'll get into the Northam situation. Um, the Washington Post hounded George Allen, the former governor of Virginia and former senator from Virginia, for a macaca moment. A Democratic tracker was following George Allen on the campaign trail and he pointed to the Democratic tracker and said macaca. It was taken as a racist slur and the Washington Post blew that story up. And they couldn't even bother to go find Ralph Northam's yearbook. They were too busy attacking Ed Gillespie as a Trump white nationalist during the 2017 gubernatorial race there in Virginia. Uh, The Washington Post also refused to cover the Kermit Gosnell situation, the abortionist in Philadelphia who was having women give birth in toilets to drown the kids. Uh, All of these things. And for them to say that democracy dies without their coverage, that they go get the facts, the actual truth of the matter is that the Washington Post has been steering coverage towards the Democrats and a worldview that favors the Democrats, and they've been ignoring stories and ignoring facts that are inconvenient to that worldview. It would be great if there were news organizations out there that live up to what the Washington Post said they do. But the sad truth is that there are very few of those organizations out there, and the Washington Post most assuredly is not one of them. I mean, for God's sakes, they've got Jen Rubin as their conservative in-house blogger. Jen Rubin is a uh, left-wing partisan. She's pro-abortion, anti-Donald Trump. Uh, She was for Mitt Romney until Mitt Romney decided to throw Donald Trump, or uh, said nice things about Donald Trump, then she attacked him. Uh, She hates everything on the right. She was for the Paris Accord, getting out of the Paris Accord, until Donald Trump supported getting out of it. Now she supports it. She was against the Iran Treaty until Donald Trump was against it, and now she's for it, on and on and on. Uh, She's extremely predictable based on what do Republicans like she comes out against, and the Washington Post gives her the mantle of being a conservative to attack conservatives. This is not an honest newspaper product, and frankly, uh, they would not be able to run this multi-million dollar ad buy during the Super Bowl if they did not have Jeff Bezos as a sugar daddy. Uh, and Bezos, of course, is decidedly to the left. I mean, for God's sakes, Amazon was worried about coming to Georgia, putting a business in Georgia, because Georgia might want the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Do you really think that the Washington Post is going to give honest coverage to religious persecution in the United States, given that Jeff Bezos is opposed to religious liberty? Do you really think that the Washington Post is going to give fair coverage to the baker who is persecuted Uh, because he doesn't want to make, of of course not. For them to try to claim the mantle of being something they're not is appalling. Um, Particularly a week after all these layoffs in the media, how many journalists could be put on the payroll for that amount of money? And they decided not to go there. Uh, Now, speaking of places we have to go. Um, I want to go check traffic, and when we get back from traffic, we got to move into the Northam situation. Uh, it is developing pretty significantly, uh, and he's had a cabinet meeting, more coming, and now let's leave the Super Bowl behind and spend a few minutes on Ralph Northam and Justin Fairfax. Uh, Ralph Northam, governor of Virginia, he 35 years ago had on his yearbook page we talked about this on Friday it was big news over the weekend had a picture on his face on his facebook page on his yearbook page uh and that picture had um well somebody was in blackface and someone was dressed up as a member of the kkk that was that was the setup um it was on his Facebook page. I, I'm sorry. I keep saying, this is where we are in, in the 21st century. You know, my kids, their school is going through the process of ordering yearbooks right now. And I, when I was a kid, we always got a yearbook. And now I'm thinking, well, my kids don't have Facebook, but we're not going to order them a yearbook right now. Um, now that I think about it in hindsight, I've got all my yearbooks, but I've, I haven't i have opened them in years um, in any event. Uh, so it was on his yearbook. Uh, he was a graduate Graduating from Eastern Virginia Medical School, each senior in that class had a half page for their yearbook in 1984, and they got to choose pictures. Multiple people in that book had pictures of them in blackface. It wasn't just Northam. Makes you wonder what kind of medical school this was. Nonetheless, uh, Northam said on Friday in a statement that it was him and he apologized, he regretted it, wasn't gonna resign. On Saturday, he says, no, no, that wasn't me. I was in blackface in a different picture, but that's not the picture on my Facebook page. I don't know who those people are. And now his roommate has come out and said, yeah, I don't think that's Ralph. Uh, well, one of the people has a hood over their face. You couldn't tell anyway. Uh, I, I, I don't think Northam needs to resign because of a 35-year-old picture in a yearbook. He needs to resign for that press conference. I don't know if you guys saw this on Saturday, but a reporter, a, 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 you know, one of those those people, democracy dies in the darkness, but for this guy who asked Ralph Northam, Ralph Northam's excuses that he had been in blackface dressed up as Michael Jackson at a different event, and uh, one of the reporters said, can he still moonwalk? And what does Northam do? He looks around to find a space until his wife stops him and says it's not appropriate. Yes, the governor of Virginia was going to moonwalk at a press conference until his wife stopped him because a reporter asked him if he could. Democracy ties the... Ralph Northam shouldn't resign because of the picture. He should resign because of the press conference. I mean, he he handled it badly. His apology was ill-formed. But this goes to a larger issue. I, I do think Northam needs to resign because he supports infanticide, and, and I still continue to believe that part of me thinks that this was a, a left-wing hit on Northam because even you've got now Tim Kaine, the, the senator from Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, the former governor of Virginia, and, and Clinton guy, all coming out saying they opposed this new law. Uh, Northam bungled it for him, and they got to get him off the scene because he's come out basically defending infanticide and left-wing howls to the contrary that's what he did uh so he's probably going to be made comfortable and, and while they decide what to do with him just like he said a baby would have happened to them and they're trying to push him out he's had a conference to decide whether or not to resign but there's a larger issue here and that's forgiveness you know he, he, again if i sound a little off if you're just tuning in i'm at claremont mckenna I, i'm not actually in a room that's really set up for radio i'm afraid um, and so I sound a little tinny, probably, but nonetheless, I, I'm here tonight uh, speaking at uh, one of their their lecture series on Christianity and politics and how counterculture Christianity is. And one of the things we see in current culture is a willingness to define us by our worst act. We're defined by our worst act, and we're never allowed to move beyond it. And This was 35 years ago. Look at Kevin Hart in the Oscars. Uh, He made a joke 10 years ago. People now, by its standards today, they don't find it funny. He apologized for it, but he's got to be driven out of the Oscars. Uh, Why apologize? And part of me actually thinks that, that one of the issues with Northam's refusal to apologize, refusal to accept that that is him, is because of the standard in secular culture these days of lack of forgiveness. He's been an elected official for 10 years. There's never been a suggestion he was a racist. There's never been a suggestion he favored or advantaged one race over another or viewed people differently based on skin color. And yet he's gotta be driven out of society and out of the governor's mansion uh, that all of these people supported him for who now want him to resign because 35 years ago there was a picture on his, on his yearbook page. That's no, that, that, that's not good for society. That's not good for us as a people. It's not good for us to be that unforgiving. And yet that's where we are with the left. I mean, listen, a decade ago, I said something really awful about just a suitor on Twitter. Uh, it, it was actually very life-changing for me. It was the moment I realized that it wasn't just me and my friends uh, on Twitter and on social media, it was people actually paid attention to me. It impacted my wife terribly. People coming up to her asking, what was your husband thinking? She she had no idea I'd even done it until she was confronted. Um, it was really eye-opening to me. It was I shouldn't have done it. I've apologized for it repeatedly. Apologize for it, and, and to this day, there are people uh, on the left, but some on the right as well, who say, oh, we can't listen to this guy. Look what he did. Uh, you know, during 2016, there were Trump supporters who were saying, we can't believe this guy. Look what he, look what he said on Twitter. I'm like, uh, yeah, I apologize for it. Uh, Donald Trump hadn't apologized for any of this stuff, and he's still doing it. Uh, people want to use your sins as a way to own you, beat you, silence you, censor you, and drive you off the stage with no forgiveness. And we as a society wind up very badly if we drive everyone away who has done something bad in the past uh, just because we dislike them. Ralph Northam should resign. He should resign for infanticide. He shouldn't resign for that picture. We should be willing to show him grace and move on and not define him by an act that was three and a half decades old. And yet the left wants to do that because it is politically convenient for them. So if you're just joining me, I, I, I feel like I need to tell you all night because you can tell I'm, I'm not in studio if you listen well. I'm actually at Claremont McKenna College Out in Claremont, California, got in at 1 o'clock this morning to their airport and made it to the hotel that I was staying at. Went over to the university, had my mixer and stuff with me so that I could do the show from Claremont. And the microphone that I typically travel with has a, I guess it has a short in it. Uh, It was buzzing. uh, It was completely unworkable. So the, the fine folks at Claremont McKenna were able to scramble around. They found me a lav mic that you use at a TV studio. But I'm not in a TV studio. I'm actually at the Athenaeum, a beautiful dining room area here on campus uh, where it never rains and yet it's pouring down rain today doing my show. So thanks for tuning in. I will be uh, back tomorrow for the State of the Union address. We're going to go until 1 o'clock in the morning tomorrow night here on WSB covering the State of the Union. After the speech, we'll also cover Stacey Abrams' response to the State of the Union tomorrow. We'll get into some thoughts on that today as well. But right now, I don't know if you saw the story over the weekend. San Francisco now has more drug addicts than it does um, uh, high school students. San Francisco has more drug addicts than high school students. Ponder that for just, just, just think about the collapse of that society. Uh, this is from KTVU in San Francisco. San Francisco has more drug users than students enrolled in its public high schools, according to a health department survey. There are 24,500 injection drug users in San Francisco, and 16,000 students enrolled in the San Francisco Unified School District, a comparison first reported by the San Francisco Chronicle. The number of serious users has gone up by 2,000 since 2012. Now, here's the thing. You and I will look at this and say there's a real problem here with society. And later this evening, before I get out of here, so the the whole reason I'm here at Claremont McKenna College is to give a speech tonight on the counterculture nature of Christianity and how it plays out in our public sphere and in politics. And one of the issues here is, well, you know, the, the rise of marijuana and drug use, you know, drunkenness is a sin. And if you are a user of drugs, uh, when you use drugs, you are trying to separate yourself from reality. You're trying to get high into a, a, a drunken state. Uh, you you got to presume that's sinful too. And we have a lot of people bailing on society as society collapses around us in drugs. And you go to places like San Francisco and they're okay with it. In fact, there are probably people in San Francisco, and I don't think I'm exaggerating here, given the rhetoric out there, there are more likely than not people in California who look at this and think it's good because a decline in, in carbon emitters is not a bad thing. So you have a bunch of people checking out of society, living on the street doing drugs, and you have fewer and fewer kids being born, and that's not a bad thing to some of them. That should be a problem for us. The The secularism that defines Ralph Northam by his bad deeds 35 years ago and stuff like this. It's just it's the collapse of society around us is really appalling. Um, We're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. We're supposed to love and be loved. We're supposed to take care of people. Now, when we come back, there's another scandal brewing in Virginia, and the contrast in how the media is handling this to Brett Kavanaugh is very, very telling. I'm, I'm going to give you the phone number now: 404-872-0750, 800 WSB Talk. We will see. Um, I, I'm at Claremont McKenna College, and so I can use my call screening app uh, anywhere in the world. Um, it, it works remotely and is really cool. Except we're having problems with the Wi-Fi here on campus. So I've got it. I've got my iPad on. And it's hooked into, I don't have the the cell service. I got a new iPad. So it's actually routing from the hotspot on my phone because I couldn't get to the IT department at Claremont McKenna to get everything set up. So everything's a little bit wonky tonight. Uh, So I make no promises on being able to get calls uh, nonetheless, here I am for you this evening, uh, going to extra effort to <laughs> to make sure. And I want to get into what, what I'm talking about here in a little bit. We also have to get into the president's schedule. But there is another scandal breaking in Virginia that's very instructive, particularly in light of the Washington Post ad uh, about democracy dying in the darkness and whatnot. Justin Fairfax is the lieutenant governor of Virginia. Uh, a website, Big League Politics, has a story of a progressive professor accusing him of misconduct, uh, bad behavior and whatnot, when they were at the Democratic National Convention. He is forcefully denying the story. Here's the thing, though. She can identify where they were, what hotel they were at, when it happened, what he did, all of those things with more detail than Christine Blasey Ford ever could with Brett Kavanaugh. And... The media treatment of this is that well, it's her word against his, and so we're there are too many red flags in the story. Contrast that with Brett Kavanaugh and then the Washington Post treatment of the same. Contrast that with Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, the Washington Post, media outlets everywhere, progressive activists said we got to believe all women. Now, there is something and this relates to the speech tonight in hypocr- hypocrisy. You've got a situation where the media has been saying since last week when the Ralph Northam picture came out, hey, Republicans, maybe you should sit this out. You got Steve King, you got Donald Trump, you're not distancing yourselves from them. Maybe you should sit out this story. Maybe the media has an obligation to pursue this story because of the way it pursued the Brett Kavanaugh story. You've, You've got the same preponderance of evidence here. You got the same situation in that regard, and yet they want to ignore this story uh, because they, you know the, the media doesn't want to tear down the Democrat lieutenant governor in Virginia when they may be elevating him as the second black governor of Virginia if they can get rid of Ralph Northam, the, the guy who posed in blackface or in a Klan hood 35 years ago. It is an amazing double standard that we are witnessing. And this is one of the reasons why so many people do not, Trust the press. But there's another side angle to the story worth considering as well, and that is why I, I firmly believe and have long taken the position that we as conservatives cannot uh, I- ignore bad actors on our side. We, we can't ignore bad things on our side because it does allow people, the, the independent person who's not a, a progressive look at us and say, well, yeah, you're just as partisan as the other guy. You turn a blind eye when it's on your side. No, no. We we have a track record of calling this out on our side. It's something we have to consider. That's why look at the ERA, ERA fight in Georgia. We'll get into this in a little bit. Uh, I have over the weekend gotten ample hate mail from people for calling out the Republicans on this. We, we, we only have a few seats left before the Democrats take the majority in the state Senate. You, you can't do this. You're going to hurt them. So we should let them pass? And then, of course, you have the people, no, 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 we shouldn't let it pass, but you should talk talk to them behind the scenes. You know, I, I'm a talk radio show host. I shouldn't have to go behind the scenes. Uh, I, I speak what I think. I get paid to do that. If you don't like it, uh, you can deal with it. But I'm not going to not cover the news, and I'm not going to not hold my own side accountable because you think there will be partisan repercussions because of it. We're seeing partisan repercussions in particularly independent voters now not believing either side. you got the Democrats all upset over Howard Schultz's run. Howard Schultz apparently reconsidering his run for the presidency because of the left-wing outrage. Um, I firmly believe we got to hold our own side accountable. If we don't, the voters are going to hold you accountable. I was on Bill Maher two weeks ago. And made that point. If we don't clean up our own side, if we don't hold our own side accountable, the voters ultimately will. And at some point the voters are gonna get flat up flat out fed up with you and they're gonna deal with it. Okay. <laughs> Now things are getting interesting here, um, so there's a train going by campus, and I can hear it in my headphones. I don't know if you guys can hear it, and there's someone also outside the room I'm broadcasting from, who's vacuuming. You know, the internet is a is a modern miracle that I can do this show here live with you guys. Uh, it doesn't look like call screening is going to be able to work tonight, but have all this going around and be able to get it over the internet, and uh, it's just it's, it's a fascinating situation. Um Wow, what a setup. Okay, the ERA in Georgia. Um, Let me just spend a couple of minutes with you and tell you it appears that it is dead, uh, and that's a good thing. The, The state Senate Republicans, as they have gone into it and explored it, and realize that looks can be deceiving, realize that this is probably not something that they actually want to pass in Georgia, so they're going to take a pass on it. Uh, It has been referred to committee and will probably stay there. I'm sure we will see Democrats in Georgia become very active in pushing this. I still think Republicans in Georgia need to get the Democrats on record against infanticide. Uh, You now got Rhode Island and Connecticut coming forward saying they need uh, late-term abortion measures. And I I think it would be great for Georgia Republicans to get in on this and say, no, no, we don't, and get the Democrats on record. You know one of the most pro-life constituencies in America? Pay attention to this. Do you know why I called Wendy Davis abortion Barbie in Texas? There's actually plenty of data out there that the most pro-life group in this country are Hispanic voters. Even in California, Hispanic voters are pro-life. So I, I knew in Texas when Wendy Davis ran for governor, define her early as abortion Barbie. That Vogue was running profiles about her her Barbie good looks. It was hilarious to see people call me sexist for calling her abortion Barbie. I was like, uh, why didn't you call Vogue sexist when they did an entire profile on her Barbie like good looks? I mean, that was their phrase, Barbie like good looks. Um, they should have seen her before the makeover. Nonetheless, um, it, defining her early as abortion Barbie hurt her with Hispanic voters. Against Greg Abbott. So I think Republicans can use this abortion issue. Most voters do not look kindly on late term abortion. It is an issue where the left thinks that everyone agrees with them and they don't. Now, we on the right need to be mindful that most Americans disagree with us on a complete abortion ban. A lot of Americans think that in the first 15 to 20 weeks, it's okay. It's after that they start having real moral reservations about it because the baby actually looks more like a baby. It's a fight we can fight, and we ought to fight it here in Georgia. We ought to get people on the record here. And frankly, if you are opposed to late-term abortion, you should be opposed to the Equal Rights Amendment, and the Georgia Republicans should get the Democrats on on record. I I, I hear from Republicans, particularly in the state Senate but also in the state House, that the Democrats are far more organized now— and seem to be wanting to run a permanent campaign. you got Stacey Abrams. She had the ad during the Super Bowl. You've got Stacey Abrams giving the State of the Union response tomorrow night. We'll get into that in a little bit. There's a, obviously a permanent campaign going on at this point, and Republicans need to respond to it. Republican donors need to step up to it. Uh, John Watson, the Republican Party chairman here in Georgia, has decided he's not going to run again. Uh, and I hope whoever takes his place really makes the permanent campaign a central issue of what they're campaigning on, that Republicans have to respond. That reminds me, by the way, um, Saturday, the 9th of February, uh, that is when they're going to have precinct meetings in the metro area. If you want to get involved in the Republican Party, uh, February 9th, call your Republican Party this week. Find out where your precinct is, where your precinct meeting is going to be. If you're in one of the big counties, if you're in Gwinnett, Fulton, uh, Cherokee, you name it call and find out where your local republican precinct meeting is going to be and show up and the odds are you'll be the only one there you'll become the chairman of the precinct you'll get to go to the county you'll get to go to the district you'll get to go to the state probably um you need to get involved here we have a permanent campaign from the democrats Are you going to cede the field? The Democrats are highly energized and mobilized. We see the writing on the wall here in Georgia. Are you going to cede the field to the Democrats? That's what they're hoping. And the easiest way for you to cede the field for the Democrats is to not show up. So you probably want to show up to these meetings. During commercial break, uh, Jamie from Mableton emailed me. She'd call in, but since I can't take phone calls, um, thank you for going along with that. Uh, Sorry, guys, sorry about just the technical issues here at at Claremont. Um, They've been so gracious to... Be able to accommodate me with all the the technical hurdles we're having to do the show today. Um, I don't remember the last time it was this difficult to do. In any event, so Jamie wanted to know um, if I could explain a little more. She's in Mableton what to do. Uh, Jason Shepard is a great person to reach out to up in Cobb County with the Republican Party, a good friend of mine there uh, with the Cobb County Republican Party. But basically, so February 9th are going to be precinct meetings. Every party, Democrat and Republicans, They divide their parties into precincts, counties, districts, and the state. Uh, The districts are congressional districts. So you show up at your precinct meeting. You've got to find out where it is from your local party. It's uh, February 9th. It only takes 30 minutes out of your morning. 30 minutes out of your morning. You show up at your precinct. You're probably going to be one of the very few people there. Bring your friends with you. You can become the chairman of your precinct. Uh, They'll all vote for you. You get involved in your local party at the precinct level. The precinct is committed to helping organize down to the precinct level and find out where all the voters are who might vote Republican. The precinct chairman then will go to the the county convention next month, and all the county uh, precinct chairmen will vote on a chairman for the party Uh, leadership for the party, and to send people to congressional district meetings, then those people will decide who goes to the state convention where you will be voting for a new state chairman of the Republican Party. John Watson, the current state party chairman, is not going to run again. So you'll get to be able you'll be able to pick a new leadership for your party, leadership to engage in the permanent campaign the Democrats are going to be waging. If you're complaining about the state of the GOP in Georgia, you want to help the president's reelection. You want to help Brian Kemp. You want to help David Perdue. You want to fight the Democrats. You got to show up. You got to get involved, and the easiest way to do it is at the precinct level on the 9th of February. In now in in counties with less than eighty thousand people, are going to do everything next month. In counties with 80,000 people or more, I believe that's right, they're going to do February 9th, they're going to be the precinct meetings. You got to be engaged, folks. That's the way to do it. When we come back, the president's schedule has been leaked, and the president's team really upset about it. the second hour I am Eric Erickson this is Atlanta's evening News on WSB um, <laughs> okay I just I, I feel like a broken record saying this sound like a broken record to, to myself at least um, I, I sound like I'm in a cavern perhaps because uh, I can hear it through my headphones a little bit uh, I am actually at Claremont McKenna College at the bottom of the hour I'll get into why what I'm actually talking about tonight. Um, but I got asked about a year ago to come out here for a speech on how Christianity is counterculture and how it applies into politics and, and life, and I'm giving that speech tonight, been preparing for it for a while. There is a holdup, though, and, and so your prayer is appreciated. Uh, you know, Christy was has, supposed to have her cancer scans last Tuesday. With the threat of snow, it got moved to tomorrow, and so I can't be there. I could not get out of the speech it's been on the calendar for a year. Uh, There was no way to get out of it. Um, So her dad will be with her, her mom with the kids. I'll be home tomorrow afternoon, and then I'll be on radio until one o'clock Wednesday morning for the State of the Union. But prayers that that everything goes well for my wife tomorrow, much appreciated. Uh, We're hoping for good scan results again. Um, But here we are at that time. Every three months we do this um, with metronomic regularity, as they say. Now, uh, before I get into the president's schedule, as promised, I, I'm, a friend of mine actually sent me a note in the break and said you didn't mention the you mentioned the Washington Post coverage, but you didn't mention this key paragraph. And I hadn't seen this key paragraph. I want to read to you this paragraph. The Washington Post, for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, let me back up. I'm sorry. Uh, all sorts of thoughts here. Uh, Justin Fairfax is the lieutenant governor of Virginia. He would become governor if Ralph Northam. The governor of Virginia resigns over his yearbook photo from 35 years ago, which I still think he should resign for supporting infanticide, not for a yearbook photo 35 years ago. But there's this paragraph from The Washington Post. The Washington Post, in phone calls to people who knew Fairfax from college, law school, and through political circles, found no similar complaints of sexual misconduct against him. Without that or the ability to corroborate the woman's account, in part because she had not told anyone what happened, the Washington Post did not run the story. Now, ask yourself, what did the Washington Post do to Brett Kavanaugh and the New Yorker and the New York Times On and on it went. Uh, Christine Blasey Ford never told anyone. There were never accusations that Brett Kavanaugh in his public or personal life behaved that way with anyone else. The woman told no one ever until after he was suddenly a Supreme Court nominee. And yet they gave wall-to-wall coverage of it and tried to ruin the man. They wouldn't do it for Justin Fairfax. They, They did it to Brett Kavanaugh. It is a stunning double standard in the media. And, and conservatives are calling them out on it. Good for them. The day after the Washington Post runs that ridiculous ad at the Super Bowl that, that democracy dies in the darkness but for them, uh, suddenly they're, they're doing this. It, it's just the nonsense, the, the double standard, it's really embarrassing. I mean, we should all be embarrassed by this standard from the media when it comes to stuff like this. Um, when we go off to war, when we exercise our rights, when we soar to our greatest heights, when we mourn and pray, when our neighbors are at risk, when our nation is threatened, there's someone to gather the facts to bring you the story, no matter the cost, because knowing empowers us. Knowing helps us decide. Knowing keeps us free. And yet we weren't allowed to know about the Justin Fairfax story, but we all had to know about the Brett Kavanaugh story. Th- that was the script of the, wa- no, I'm not pay- playing the Washington Post ad. Um, no sense giving Jeff Bezos airtime for that. But that's where we are, folks. An amazing double standard. Okay, we gotta get into the president's schedule. I I'm hesitant to say what I'm about to say, and I shouldn't say it, but I'm going to say it. Yeah, I am. Um I talked to the president several weeks ago. Didn't answer the phone the first time. Called the second time, answered the phone, the president. Um, I'm not going to tell you what we talked about. Just, I'm going to tell you, talked to the president several weeks ago. Uh, He called me. And I'm only saying that to highlight an issue. President Trump's schedule has leaked. His schedule is filled with executive time. Executive time means downtime. The president watching TV, the president answering phone calls from friends, calling friends. Uh, sending notes to friends, uh, all of that. It is very reminiscent to Bill Clinton's schedule, his first term in office. Um, it is far less disciplined than George W. Bush, who arguably has the most had the most disciplined schedule of any president in modern times. Uh, he started his day in the Oval Office around 5.30 in the morning and didn't finish until about 7 o'clock at night. And his day was scheduled in 10-minute increments throughout the day. Very, very precise. Uh, Barack Obama, not nearly as precise as George W. Bush, but both of them more disciplined and precise than Bill Clinton. And uh, Donald Trump, very much more like Bill Clinton, but even more so than Bill Clinton. Lots of executive time. It's being treated as a huge story. And the story should be the leaky. I have not told anyone about my call, um, because I, 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 do not believe that conversations with anyone in that situation need to be repeated, uh, as gossip or anything else. Uh, I told a couple friends, it was just very, very cool that, that it happened. It, it, it really was when you answer the phone and, and someone asks if you're you and you say, yeah, and they say, please hold for the president of the United States. You're kind of thinking, is this a joke? And it wasn't, um, There's no reason, though, to brag about conversations with the president. One of the worst problems that this administration has is there are tons of people who want to brag about access. I mean, I I get lit on fire by people all the time on this program uh, who have never had that experience, who have never engaged with that person. I've actually sat and interviewed him before for over an hour, and— get lit on fire. And, and I would rather be lit on fire than, than brag about stuff like that to you guys. And the only reason I bring it up is to make this point. Uh, there are a lot of people who want access to the president who then burn him in the media, people he can't trust. And yet he's surrounded with these people. Uh, some of them are in this situation at this point because they actually don't believe he's going to win a second term. And they're trying to suck up to the press as they angle for their next job. That is the story here. The president is continually being undermined by staff who are leaking, who are sabotaging his administration. He does, a, he does a good job himself of hurting himself at times. And he needs to do better. I think the president can win in 2020, but he's got to exercise some discipline. Uh, Hillary Clinton's not going to be on the ballot this time. It's going to be different. But the story of the staff leaking his schedule, that should be the story. Not that the president has lots of executive time. Uh, and you know what he's doing during that executive time? He's calling people. Call, called me. Uh, he, he's calling friends of his. He's calling people to get their advice. He's not using the formal list of advisors that most presidents rely on, largely because he now knows, thanks to the New York Times anonymous op-ed, that a lot of those people are trying to stop him from doing the things he wants to do. So he's reaching out around them. The story here is that the president continues to be sabotaged by press humpers who want to get out of the press and be liked by the press, uh, leaking his schedule to the press. That's a really big deal, and it's one that this White House needs to seriously investigate and find out what's going on and stop these people. break and charlie says I, I guess you can tell him about your meeting with the vice president now <laughs> I, I i hesitate to, to say anything about that and we're, we, we won't go into specifics um it, it's just to point out that i mean you would think that i would benefit by bragging about that and uh, the president's staff they're the ones doing stuff like that and they don't need to uh, people should be willing and able to keep secrets. And he, 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 the call was was not off the record, but it, it just it, it was just a he was a friendly call. Um, it, during the campaign, twenty sixteen, I actually asked them not to leak this. You know, Vice President Pence did an event down in Middle Georgia, and he was delayed by about forty five minutes because he wanted to visit with me. Uh, it was kind of funny. We went off into a private area. He landed at the Middle Georgia Airport. And we went off into a private meeting room and, and had a good conversation. Uh, it was his wife, uh, Nick Ayers, him, me, uh, and it was just, it was a nice time. And I felt no need to brag about that on the radio uh, or talk about it at the time. In fact, I specifically asked his team not to tell the reporters that's what had held him up. Um, and so it, it it doubly angers me when I see so many people want to brag about stuff like that. Uh, I, I've met plenty of famous people in my life. I, I know some very, very famous people who you all know, uh, who I am friends with, and and I don't name drop. I don't drop their names. I, I don't want to be known as a friend of theirs. In, in a couple of cases, it's people who I think it would probably harm their career in Hollywood if uh, we were known as being friends with each other because we'd completely disagree on politics but are friends otherwise. And... One of the most frustrating parts in this era and, uh, is, and you know, I, I don't know that I, I was about to say the Me Too hashtag, and I don't want to disparage what is a good movement to um, reveal harassers and stuff, but there really is this sort of, and everything else as well, beyond I'm a victim of, of being abused, there's a, hey, Me Too, Me Too, I know this person, I have access to this person, let me tell you about my time, the, the bragging, and putting this stuff up on Instagram and and oversharing connections to people. And oftentimes you have people who they really aren't that connected to someone, but they claim to be. And it's so frustrating. And we see these people now surrounded by the president. I think they do a real disservice leaking his schedule to him. There's nothing wrong with the president having a lot of executive time because I have a sense of what he's doing in that executive time. There is a real problem, though, in the braggadocious nature of people wanting to suck up to the media by leaking stuff like that, by being on the press's side, uh, by being useful in those ways, a need to be liked—that's uh, what it really comes down to—a need to be liked by certain people. That's kind of why I'm. So I'm here at Claremont McKenna College out in Claremont, California. I'm giving a speech tonight. Um, in actually, in, in about three hours from now it's, it's the whole time change thing has me thrown off i'm actually in their big amphitheater area which is why it sounds somewhat funny here i'm actually using a live mic holding it up as if it's a regular mic so that it doesn't catch so much of the echo as it was on my shirt um in any event i when i come back i want to spend a little bit of time talking about that it's relevant to all these subjects today Shaney B is going to be so proud of me. Uh, I have managed to make it through this entire show without giving you the time. And it's solely because I'm having to listen down the line for when to go to break us. There's no clock in here. And my Apple Watch battery is dead. I've been up since four o'clock in the morning, um, California time. uh, In any event, so I am here at Claremont McKenna College in Claremont, California. Beautiful area, but really, really beautiful. And it normally doesn't rain, and it is pouring down rain. There are mudslides in the area. Uh, I don't have an umbrella. I clearly came underprepared. Don't have a jacket with me other than my suit. Um, but uh, yeah, I got soaked going out to lunch a little while ago. Um, so I'm, I'm giving the speech, and it's on counterculture faith, how Christianity is very counterculture uh, to the culture today, and that applies to politics as well. And how we are supposed to—we're not supposed to be tribal as, as Christians. You can identify as a Republican, but you should put your faith above the Republican Party. And it's one of my frustrations with a lot of uh, Christian Trump supporters is they're willing to excuse his bad behavior because they decide the other side is worse. Um, when I think it's okay to say, you know what, what he did was wrong, but look at the other side. We're, we're choosing between two sinners and, and the l- evils of two lessers as opposed to the lesser of two evils. Uh, And we align more with him. It's the nature of politics. We're we're not going to find someone who's pure as the driven snow. And yet, there are a lot of people who serve as apologists for bad behavior. But one of the larger aspects here, particularly dealing—this is a college. It's undergraduates. It's not graduate students. It's related to my book, "Before You Wake," and life lessons to my kids. And it, it all really comes back. People ask me all the time what my favorite verse of the Bible is. Honestly, I'm terrible about memorizing verses. In Scripture, but uh, I can tell you, in all honesty, my favorite verse in the Bible is actually the very first verse: "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." And the reason it's my favorite verse is because it seems so superficial and trite. We can say this verse, easy to memorize, easy to say. It's your first, it's your favorite verse because it's the first verse. But it's actually very, very deep. Um, The word created in Hebrew is bara. In the beginning, Elohim bara. In the beginning, God created. And and that word is referencing that God creates in a way we don't. Now, this is Moses writing. Uh, Orthodox Christianity believes Moses wrote Genesis. And when he says um, God created, God bara, What he's saying is that he created in a divine way that we can't. Man cannot create in this way. Um, The verb used for when people built the Tower of Babel or when Noah built the ark was different from God creating. And... What Moses is saying to his contemporaries at the time, he grew up as a prince of Egypt, uh, worshiping the Egyptian gods, where Pharaoh becomes a god, is that Pharaoh becoming a god still cannot create in a way that this god, this one god created, and that there are not a multitude of gods, there's one god. And the sun and the moon are not gods, they're objects in the sky, along with the stars, is throwaway line that God fixed the the, the the bright star in the day and the the um, lesser star at night the moon at night and and the stars as well is just kind of a throwaway line. And we, as Christians in politics and in life, we we we've, we've got to model this that that God created in a way we can't. So in modern times, sexuality is is the big thing that uh, we can't make ourselves male and female. Uh, Genesis one says God made us male and female, so we can't embrace transgender ideology because it's not biblical. We cannot embrace the idea that, um, for example, homosexuality isn't a sin because, or that, that gay marriages is, is appropriate because uh, God created marriage as an institution between man and women, and it becomes harder and harder in society for Christians, and we want to be liked. We want to get along. lot. We don't want to pick these fights. We don't want to have these fights. We don't want to be seen as the bad guy. We want to be liked. We don't want to say, and there's this huge temptation to say that, okay, we're okay with this. Um, yes, we're Christians, and we believe this, but it doesn't really apply in a daily life, And and what the Bible says is that we can't be a Christian for an hour on Sunday and then be a Republican or a Democrat or a liberal or a conservative the rest of the week. That Christianity must infuse our morality. It must infuse our daily life. And it puts us in very difficult positions sometimes, particularly in modern culture, given the sexual revolution. And that that's kind of where I'm headed tonight with this speech. Um, there are things we can find common ground on. Like, for example, Christians are supposed to be good stewards of the environment. Uh, we can't just go out and pollute for the heck of it. I've got friends who who love to um, joke that they're going to go out and burn stuff. Uh, they're going to go pollute just, just because. You, you can't do that. you got to be a good steward. But the, that's where I'm headed tonight. It, it's just it's a topic that's been more and more fascinating to me as I've been working on my degree in theology. So real quickly, I'm I'm going along bad with clock management tonight. Um, so I'm starting off on the easy things in this speech. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Um, the environment, being a good neighbor. These are all things we can agree with. I, I'm waiting towards the end to get into biblical sexuality and uh, things like that. Um, build some common ground first. But, you, you know, we have a habit of believing the things we want to be true and not believing the things we want to be false believing that everything we disagree with is fake news i i get ang- people angry with me all the time for saying something is true or is it true just because they don't like it uh truth is truth it's not meant to be mean it doesn't matter whether you like it or not truth is is truth and in politics now we have a we have this idea that if I don't like this it must be wrong. The the media must be lying to me because it doesn't conform to my worldview. And and we as Christians, if we embrace God and God is truth, we've got to embrace truth and we've got a higher obligation, I think, to accept things that are true, even if we may not like those things. And that's what I'll be speaking about here at Claremont McKenna uh, and actually about two hours now because of the time change, the way this works, I got to go to a, a pre-event. I got to got to go to a, a press event with student journalists and then I got to go to a, a pre-function thing and then there's a dinner and then there's the keynote and then they're doing a book signing for my um, before you wait book. So anyway, we'll be back in just a minute. Believe it or not, I've become that guy. I got up this morning, there's no hotel gym, and trying to get back into CrossFit, and I couldn't go this entire past week because I had meetings every morning, and so yeah, I'm the guy on the top floor of the hotel doing burpees and jumping jacks in my room. God, I hate burpees. Um, Nonetheless, there I was. Trying to get my exercise for the day. My Apple Watch is happy with me. Got to close the rings. Got to close the rings, people. Um, Housekeeping notes. Tomorrow, uh, Mark Aram is going to take my slot because I am going to be in the air getting home. But then tomorrow night, I will cover the State of the Union address with you, the Stacey Abrams response as well. We will be capturing it, uh, the never-ending campaign. The Democrats are really investing in Stacey Abrams in a way. They haven't invested in candidates in a while. The State of the Union response tends to be a a flop for anyone who gives it. And the, the bigger issue is no one ever remembers it. I mean, I was telling people last year the State of the Union didn't really matter last year. And within three days, the president had tweeted something and everybody was paying attention to something else. That's probably going to be the way it is now. But it is the big political event of the year Uh, in the run-up to a year from now, the Iowa caucuses uh, setting the stage. And also whether Abrams will run against Purdue. So stick with us here at WSB tomorrow night. At 10.30 p.m. until 1 o'clock in the morning, I'll be broadcasting across the Cox Media Group family of stations and taking your phone calls and reaction to the State of the Union. I will see you guys then. Have a great night.